And turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, such a well-known psalm, such an encouraging word. Not only for the church, I think there is a universal sense that there is in these words of Psalm 23, a peace, a comfort, an encouragement that many, even outside of the church, find encouraging. Psalm 23, we're reading all of it in light of what it is that we confess in Lord's Day 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. Hear the word of God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Then let's turn to Lord's Day 1 in our Forms and Prayers books. It's page 201. Two hundred one in our forms and prayers books, two hundred one and two hundred two. And we'll recite together the words of the answer. I'll ask the question and then together we'll offer this answer, these answers. This is one of those question and answers, like Psalm twenty three, that just speaks to the heart that's so often on our lips, at least parts of it. It's worth Committing to memory, it's such an encouraging word. So Lord's Day 1, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And then question answer two. How many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we begin again our catechetical instruction. 
We find ourselves again in the school of faith, whereby we are taught the things of God's goodness and grace in this most precious of confessional statements. And because we're doing it again, and and indeed because we do it with such regularity, there is a certain sense in which we ought to be cautious, recognizing that familiarity can breed contempt. That is, the more we know something, the more that we understand something, the more we tend to take it for granted, the more it becomes boring to us, the more it becomes ordinary, and we think, oh no, not this again. We've already heard this. We know this. Why do we have to spend time on this? And that's also a challenge when it comes to the catechism, not just to Lord's Day 1 or question and answer 1, but to the entire teaching of the catechism. It is, because it's so familiar, easily uh, uh, repeated, easily recited even in our minds and sometimes for that reason its majesty and its warmth and its power is missed. We, we, we fail to grasp just how deep, how, how profound, how powerful these words are. I mean, just think of the question alone of question and answer one when it asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? It asks for an only Comfort, an exclusive comfort, a singular comfort. One that, that cannot be removed if you strip everything else away. There are, of course, so many other sources of comfort in our lives. We can acknowledge that. Family and friends, church community, their comfort, health, it's a comfort. Our homes are comfortable. We have comfort food. Those are all good. And to acknowledge them as comfort, of course, we ought to. But food can be taken from us. Health can be taken from us. What is the thing in your life that cannot be taken from you? The one thing, that only thing that survives everything else, that isn't temporary or transient, the thing that can sustain you every day of your life, that can sustain you even on the day of your death. From the day of your death, what will comfort you? Will it be your house? Will it be your car? Will it be your financial situation? Will it be any of your family and friends? What, what will you have as your only comfort that day? And indeed, this comfort that we seek is one that sustains us each and every day. It, it's, a, it's a total comfort, a comfort for all of life. And, and comfort here means assurance. It, it means confidence. It means actually strength. That's the idea here. What gives you strength? What gives you the ability to face today and tomorrow? To embrace the joys, to endure the trials? What enables you to do more than exist? What is it that keeps you from trembling? What is it that prevents your heart from beating wildly as you think about all of the the things that can happen to you? What is it that gives you confidence? that allows you to face each day regardless of its promise or its threat. Among all the possible encouragements, what is the one that gives you the confidence to deal with the demands of living and the reality of dying? That's a big question. That's 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 an enormous question. That's a hard question to answer. It's an often unasked question that we assume we know the answer to. We build our answers even without realizing it. We, We all, every human being alive, answers this question. 
But what they don't always realize, what we maybe don't always realize, is how weak and frail our answers are. Just think, think of it in these ways. This week you're going to go to work, going to go to school, going to stay at home and do laundry, do, do the basic activities of life. Why? What's the point? Is it just to make money? Is it so that you can buy stuff or go places? Is it so that you can keep yourself secure, so that you can ward off the, the, the dangers of, of ill health or of financial downturns? Why do you go to work? Why do you keep a home? Why do you study in your, in your chosen field? What if, what if you spend all of this money to get a degree and never get a job in your chosen field? Never, never in the end get to use that education meaningfully. What if, what if your business starts to succeed but then one day crashes and burns and you find yourself with nothing? What happens if we suddenly find a series of financial challenges that prevents us from realizing these self-fulfilling benefits? If, if 20 years from now, after you've put in all those long hours, if you've done all of this hard work, you end up with nothing but maybe debt. Don't you think you'd look back on those years and say, what's the point? Why did I do this? Why did I bother? What, what reason can I give for having gotten up every morning in the early hours before the sun was up to go out to do a job that has produced nothing for me? Maybe it's not work that does that for you. Maybe it's relationships. Think about how often we get married or want to be married. Why? Why do we want to get married? Sounds like a silly question to ask in a context like ours. But why? I ask that question of every couple that comes when we do marriage counseling. And all the answers are the same. So that somebody can do something for me. The answers aren't quite put that way, but that's what it boils down to. We're getting married so that we could have somebody do our laundry, make our meals, keep us happy. And we may not realize it, but that's it. Because what happens when that other person becomes a drain emotionally, mentally? Becomes a burden. Maybe because of their own personality and character, but maybe because of the circumstances of life. They fall ill. They experience a mental health event. And now the marriage that you thought was going to be lovely with children, white picket fenced, is not. It's a grievous, burdensome, daily slog. And don't imagine it can't happen. Don't you think at some point you might say, why did I do this? What, what's, what's the point? Why did I get married? What's the point? Or maybe, maybe it's too dark a way to think of things. Maybe we shouldn't talk about all the darkness. Maybe everything's going to go well. Your business is going to succeed. Your marriage is going to be happy. And then one day after you've laid another friend in the ground, another colleague in the grave, and you're making plans to retire, you're making plans to move into shalom, maybe you sit in your house and you wonder, was it all worth it? Is this all there is? We look at our lovely homes, our lovely children, our two-car garage and our Dominican holiday, and we say, What's the point? What's the point? 
Everybody asks that question. Everybody does. You read the book of Ecclesiastes. Read it again and again and again. It asks it over and over. And if you don't want to read Ecclesiastes, turn on your radio. Listen to Green Day's plaintive cry in Boulevard of Broken Dreams. My shadow's the only one that walks beside me. My shallow heart's the only thing that's beating. Or if you prefer, recall the words of Freddie Mercury in Who Wants to Live Forever. Why would anyone not want to live forever? Well, listen to his words. There's no time for us. There's no place for us. What is this thing that builds our dreams yet slips away from us? Or think of Lord who sings, This dream isn't feeling sweet. We're reeling through the midnight streets and I've never felt more alone. It feels so scary getting old. Or the strokes who repeatedly ask, Is this it? in their chorus of the song by the same name. And we could go on and on and on because popular culture is filled with this question, what's the point? Where's the value? Where's the meaning? What is it all about? If you look around and listen carefully to the world in which you live, you'll hear our world asking again and again what is your only comfort in life and in death. And they will answer it in some way. There's lots of stuff poured out by our world to provide a response to this question that is anything like the answer that we've just recited together. I mean, there's obvious ways in which our world tries to answer that question in things like drugs and drink that are intended to numb our senses and to avoid having to face the truth of our sorrows. But social media is another option. It's another availability. We can while the hours away while vicariously living through the lives of others as we sit in our darkened bedrooms doing nothing and going nowhere. Beauty, wealth, experiences, they're also possible agents of distraction. Have you ever wondered why aging actors and actresses disfigure themselves so horribly with plastic surgery? It's because they don't want to admit the truth or they're answering the question we just were asked by directing the gaze of all men to their outward appearance. Oh, the world answers this question every day. We answer this question every day. But do we answer it this way? We who are heirs of a treasure so precious and powerful, we sometimes fail to appreciate the riches that we've been provided as a community letting it instead gather dust on our mantelpiece uh, uh, mantel while we go out to taste and see that the world is good. I mean, even in our own church community, why do we struggle in our relationships? Why do we experience the power of addiction? Why is pornography a, a scourge in our lives too? Why do we feel afraid? Why do we feel disrespected and overwhelmed? Why do we so often feel undervalued? It's certainly not because of the frailty of the gospel. It's so often because we've lost sight of it. Think of the Israelites and how quickly they gave up on the promise of overwhelming blessing for the leeks and potatoes of Egypt. Or how they turned from the giver of life, the one who fed and sustained and strengthened them, for the idols of Philistia and Babylon. 
Don't we do the same? Is not materialism a problem among us? Is not lukewarm piety a problem for us too? Is pride not something we struggle with? Is our community free of gossip, cruelty, and selfishness? We who have been given this inheritance, who have been given this answer to confess and to know deep in our hearts, why is it that we put up with other solutions, other answers, other comforts, cheaper, less powerful, less comforting answers and do we not discover as the world does that all such pursuits leave us empty frustrated angry and no further ahead we end up being discouraged and down now to be sure not every problem we carry is the product of our spiritual failure it can be the problem of other people's spiritual failure and sometimes it's just the the reality of a sin-stained world when our bodies betray us when our minds are burdened But even then, what is our response to those challenges? What is the one thing that gets us up in the morning to face what may be another day of discouragement? What is our only comfort in life and in death? The Catechism teaches us. The Word of God teaches us. The Scriptures, even as we've read from Psalm 23, teach us. The answer, says the believer, the answer has nothing to do with me, but it has everything to do with God. The God who, who is, the God who lives, the, the God who has done majestic things, powerful things, powerful things. This is how the catechism responds to us. In the midst of the chaos of our world, in the midst of this uncertainty, the one thing that we can call to mind for our encouragement, says the catechism, lots of things, of course, that we can call to mind, past blessings, future blessings. For some reason, we like to think about other people who are worse off to somehow make us feel better about our problems. But the Catechism says, here's the the way in which you should turn your mind. Here's the thing to which you should think when, when you face the challenges of life, when you wake up in the morning, when you face the day. Here's the comfort that should give you strength to get out of bed. The gracious and profound love of God, the triune God that is yours in Jesus Christ. Notice that. Both are true. Jesus Christ is central to each of the blessings that are recited for us in Lord's Day 1. He is the one who has washed us in the blood, but He is the one also that watches over us in such a way that not a hair can fall from our head without the will of our Heavenly Father. It's Jesus who watches over us, but it's our Father who guides and guards us. And it is Jesus who gives us His Spirit that we might work. So it is in Christ that we have these blessings. They're all in Christ, but they are blessings of the triune God, of what He's done, of how He has purchased us so that we belong to Him. That's how it starts. Our comfort is that we belong to Jesus, this faithful Savior who has fully paid for all our sins with His precious blood and delivered us from the tyranny of the devil. He did that. He came and paid the debt. He delivered us from the chains of sin. He gave His life that we might live anew. What a wonderful thing it is just to be able to say that. I mean, do we really appreciate, do we in this lifetime appreciate just how rich a condition that is? To know that sin is no claim on us anymore. That death is no longer our master. That we are free in Christ. That we are not ever under judgment again. We are not facing condemnation. That this is true. That in Jesus Christ we live forever. That we are loved by God forever. 
Do we realize what that means? Especially in the darkest hours of our struggle. Do we know what privilege it is to to be able to walk through this life in the absolute certainty that we go from life to life? That when the doctor speaks a word of discouragement to our ears, it may shock us, it may shake our confidence. But as we reflect on what Jesus has done, that we say, but I belong to Him. I belong not to cancer, but to Jesus. And not because of anything I've done, but because He came and did battle on my behalf. Because He hung on the cross and said, it is finished. What a comfort it is to know that we need not fear God, that we need not fear His judgment, that we need not fear death, that we need not fear eternity, that we can look forward with great confidence, that we can celebrate the greatness of our God in Jesus Christ. But that's not only true for the future, it's also true for the present. Our comfort in belonging to Jesus has very present benefits too. He watches over us in such a way that not a hair can fall from our head without the will of our Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for our salvation. Oh, we do live in a world so seemingly filled with uncertainty and chaos. You can plan your life, you can... Imagine that it's going to go along this path just like everybody else's. You can chart it out. You can say, this is when I'm going to get married. This is what I'm going to do with my business. This is how, I'm going, how many children I'm going to have. You can plan it all out. But we live in a world of earthquakes. We live in a world of tidal waves. We live in a world of storms. We can so often feel like bits of flotsam on the tide of life. We, We can find ourselves to be very small and very shaken, uncertain. What now, God? What now? What will tomorrow bring? What will this mean for me? How am I supposed to deal with this, Lord? How am I supposed to survive? But we are secured, says the Word. We are secured by the sovereign hand of our Heavenly Father. So secure, in fact, that everything must work for our good. Think of what that means in the face of the most severe enemy. Think of what that means as the, as the challenges of life come against us. What can they do to us that the Lord cannot control, that He cannot turn to our good? What wound is so deep that God can't heal it? What grief is so heavy that the Lord can't give us strength to bear it? What future is so bleak that the light of God's love can't pierce it? Imagine, imagine the privilege that we have as we go through this chaotic world knowing that our hearts, our lives are are secured in the loving hands of a Father so mighty that all things must work for our good. All of creation must obey His demand and bring about our eternal good. Can you imagine living apart from that? Can you imagine living a life where your future, your reality, your now is dependent entirely on your ability to manage, to control, to affect the outcome, the choices you make, the decisions, that everything's on your shoulders. You have to do it, and if you don't do it right, it's going to go badly. What a terror that would be to live. A terror to live that way. To, to, to think that it's 
If your marriage is going to be successful, it's because you picked the right spouse. If your children are going to be good, it's because you parented perfectly. If, if you're going to be successful in life, it's because you made the right decisions. Can you sleep at night with that kind of weight upon your shoulder? Can you, can you make a decision in life knowing that if you make the wrong one, the outcome can, can be devastating? What a comfort it is for the believer to know that they live in the hands of a God who's so sovereign over all of life, who loves us so perfectly in Jesus Christ that we are more than conquerors, that we are utterly secure. So that no matter when or what the world says against us, no matter what we might face, God is with us in that moment and assures us This is for your good. This is for your good. You may not see it. You may not know it. You may not understand it. It may seem impossible to you. In this moment, you may not believe that this is for your good, but I give you my word in Jesus Christ. I am using this to bless you. What an encouragement to the heart of anyone who faces the challenges of this world, not because of anything we've done, Not because of any, it is in Christ that you receive this blessing. It is in Christ that the Father so loves you. It is in Christ that He counts the hairs of your head. You don't secure your daily life. You don't secure your driving on the roads, your sleeping at night. He does. He does. He works all things by His sovereign power. I was recently reading a book in which was discussed some of the pathology, some of the diseases of life, in which the author at one point said, it is not remarkable that we get sick. It is rather remarkable that we're not sick all the time. So many diseases, so many threats exist in the creation. And that's true spiritually as well. That's true emotionally as well. That's true mentally as well. But we have a God who secures us, who hedges us around and about, who holds us fast in His hands and blesses us daily. What a wonder it is to know this God. And our comfort in belonging to Jesus has not only future blessings, it has not only present blessings, it has persistent blessings, ongoing benefits. For by His Holy Spirit, we're told, Christ assures us of eternal life and makes us wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Here even the passion, even the piety, even the reformation, the renewal, the growth and maturity of the believer is credited to God's saving grace. That is, God doesn't sit back and say, okay, I've saved you in Jesus Christ and I've secured an environment in which you can live safely. Now prove your worth. Now you show your goodness. Now you do it. You accomplish it. No, even here, He powerfully and persuasively works in us by His Spirit so that we are reshaped, so that our lives more fully reflect Jesus Christ. That the Spirit of Christ works in us in ways that we cannot begin to imagine. Now don't misunderstand that. We don't want to leave people with the impression that that here we can let go and let God, that if you just sit around and mind your own business, When God gets around to creating a passion in your hearts, you'll feel His presence and His piety. 
I know the Spirit works in our lives in such a way that our will is activated, our emotions are enlivened, we are brought not only to believe, but we are also made to do actually what we believe. That is to say, we are involved by the Spirit's presence in our growth spiritually. We go to church, we do our devotions, we pray, we sing, we grow. We daily repent and believe. We put to death the old nature. We say, that's wrong, and I need to get better at that, and this is right, and I need to get better at that. But at the end of it all, as we experience the growth of spirituality, as we, our lives are more and more fully shaped in the image of Christ, we don't take the credit to ourselves. We acknowledge that it is Christ by His Holy Spirit at work within us. Indeed, here is a reason for grief when we learn that our fellow believers, maybe even ourselves, are not living for the Lord, are claiming Jesus Christ as our King, or saying something like, I believe I'm saved, but are not devoting their life to the Lord. Because such persistent impiety, such continual sinfulness can only raise one terrifying question, and that is this, do you truly belong to Jesus Christ? Has He truly claimed you as His own? You show no evidence that you are in the company of the redeemed. That ought to strike terror into our hearts. We ought to find ourselves on our knees pleading with God, Lord, work in my life that I might be renewed. Yet here is very much the comfort and the confidence for the church, for the family, for the preacher or the parent, for the friend, ministering to a struggling loved one. Because do any of us really believe that we have the words to speak, that we have the ability to move the heart of the unbeliever to faith? We would be fools if we thought that. Only God can make your child love Him. Only God can turn the heart of your loved one, your straying friend, to Him. Only God, by His Son and His Spirit, can work faith in that congregant that we're ministering to Him or to. That's why we are to just minister. We are to just live in this confidence. We are to just live in this comfort. We are to just say, Lord, I'm a crooked stick. I'm not a straight stick. I'm not good at this. But I know that you can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. You can still use this broken tool in your hand to accomplish your purposes for you are more powerful than I. You are more glorious than I. And you promise in Jesus Christ to do these things. And so be faithful to this beloved member. Be faithful to your promises. Work by your power in their life. For God is able and willing to work by His Spirit in the hearts of His people. Indeed, it is the only way that we come to faith. When God works His work, when God accomplishes His power. That's our comfort. Our comfort is not our ability, our ministerial technique, our piety. Our comfort is that we belong to Jesus. And belonging to Jesus, know the joy of His grace, His forgiveness, His cleansing blood of the care of our Heavenly Father as He watches over us and the equipping and enabling of His Spirit to do what we are called to do. Our comfort is our triune God. And that needs to always be the heart of what we confess. That needs to be what gets us up in the morning. That needs to be what... Equips us to face the challenges of each day that needs to be what makes us anticipate blessing. That we have a God so faithful, so great, so good in all that He does. 
That by belonging to him, we have been given the greatest gift of all. We have been given hope. We have been given confidence. We have been given strength. We have been given life. That this is the one gift that cannot be taken from us, for it is given to us by God himself. Our health can be taken. Our jobs can be taken. Our relationships can end. Our minds can forget who we are, but God will not forget us whom He has purchased in Jesus Christ our Lord. It is the one thing that can never be taken from you. That you belong to Jesus Christ. And that you are loved by the Father and indwelt by the Spirit. This is an abiding comfort. This is a security that the world cannot know, cannot find, cannot experience apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Indeed, that's what the Catechism goes on to say when it speaks in question and answer two of what it is that we need to know to live and die in the joy of this comfort. It understands in the language of the question itself that sometimes we can hear this information and we can hear it intellectually, we can hear it technically we can hear it as information but not necessarily internalize it in the deepest possible way that especially in the context of a multi-generational congregation such as ours it is possible for us to become bored with it it's possible for us to become complacent with it it's possible for us to go oh no not another catechism sermon and why is that why why do we get distracted from this comfort why Why is this rich inheritance, this privileged blessing, why isn't it always our greatest treasure, our most precious possession, our most powerful encouragement? Why don't we always know the powerful promises of our triune God? Well, we live in a rather bruising, rather difficult world. We go out on on Sunday, we come into the church, it's nice, We have time to think about the things of the Lord. But tomorrow we go out and the assault begins from the very first moment we awake and it persists every day of the week. Even on Sundays we experience that, don't we? Even on Sundays the the devil can distract us as we sit in church, as we're praying, our mind goes somewhere else as we're at home at the table doing devotions, dad's reading the Bible and our mind is a million miles away. Because our world, our enemies, the devil, the world, and even our own flesh, they're always attacking us. They're always wanting to turn us away. They're always wanting to keep us from focusing on this truth, what God has done. They don't want us to look at God. They don't want us to look at His love. They don't want to look at, have us to look at His grace. The devil's busy daily trying to get us to look at what Amazon's selling, at what Instagram's teaching us, at what the world thinks, at what's going on in politics, the, 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 the decay of Western civilization. The, we're so wrapped up in what's going on around us that we can find ourselves distracted, turned around. We can find ourselves like Dorothy in that hurricane as it led her off to Oz, spinning around and around, and everything just swirls before our eyes, and we can't focus on anything. Because everything's moving. That's why the catechism says to us, well, here's the antidote to that. Let me, let me give you an antidote. 
an antidote to all of the distraction, all of the foolishness of our world, all of the stuff that's going to keep you from knowing this precious and powerful truth. Whether you're a young member of the church, whether you're an elderly member of the church, whether you're going through a tough time, going through a good time, let me tell you how you're going to stay focused, how you're going to live and die in the joy of this comfort, how it's going to dwell so deep within you, how it's going to sustain you every day of your life, how it's going to equip you in your relationships, it's going to equip you in your worship, it's going to equip you in your work, it's going to get you up in the morning eager to serve God. How is it that we're going to accomplish that? We're going to go to a monastery maybe? Maybe that's what we should do. We should all just get up and build a commune somewhere where it's just us and, and nobody can get in and distract us. There's no internet there. That sort of thing. We'll just live together as if that will make the difference. No, that doesn't solve the problem. Of course, we know that. We know that from history. It doesn't solve the problem. So how are we going to solve the problem? Well, says the catechism, let me tell you three things. Let me just... let's. Let's study three things. That's all we're going to do. We're just going to keep our eyes focused on three things. Well, okay, that's easy. Three things. What are they? How great your sin is. How great your sin is. That's where you need to start. How great your sin is. How great your sin is. Not that you're a sinner. Everybody knows they're a sinner. Everybody knows that. The world knows that. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that they're not perfect. Nobody ever thinks they're perfect. Everybody knows they make mistakes. But you know how great that is? Do you know how significant that is? Do you know how hard that is? Do you know how broken and bruising that is? Do you know how painful that is? Do you know how foolish and destructive that is? You don't. I can tell you don't because like me, like me, we play with fire all the time. We, we let our temper go. We, we, we lust of the, of the flesh. We get greedy for the things of this world. We see the neighbor's vehicle or the, and we go, why can't I have that? We're selfish. We're thoughtless. We're, we treat people poorly. We gossip. We lie. We, do we really understand how destructive those things are? You think about, think about when dad and mom said to you, did you, did you do that? Did you do that? And then you lied. And because you lied... Dad and mom don't trust you so much anymore. Dad and mom aren't so confident that you're going to tell them the truth anymore. They, they don't know if they can, can let you be responsible on your own anymore. They think, well, we've got to now keep an eye on this one because this, one, this one's clearly not doing what they're told. This one's lying and deceiving and the relationship is a bit broken, a bit frayed, a bit strained. Do we realize that's what we do every time we lie? Do we know how great our sin and misery is? I don't think we do. And I think we need to. Because if we don't, need our need, don't know our need, we're not going to know just how remarkable is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. If we don't know our need, we're not going to know our Savior. We need to know how great our sin and misery is. So we're going to need to take some time And we're going to have to ask some tough questions and we're going to have to look deep into our own hearts and we're going to have to say, what's wrong with me? And we're going to have to take that out and put it on the table and let the light of God's Word shine on it so that we can just see how ugly and awful it is and can hate it more and more. We need to know how great our sin is. But we also need to know how we're delivered. We need to know how we're delivered. Now, we all know how we're delivered. 
So you think, okay, step two we can do quick. We're done. We know how we're delivered. Jesus died on the cross. Good enough. Off we go. We don't need to know about that. Let's get to step three, which is how we are to thank God. Let's talk about Christian living. Let's talk about what's right and what's wrong. Let's deal with some ethical issues. Let's start getting things going. We don't need step two. Step two is easy. How I'm delivered? Jesus died on the cross. But why? Why a cross? Why could only the Son of God accomplish that? What did He accomplish? How completely saved are you? Are you almost saved? Mostly saved? Completely saved? What's left for you to do? What, what is the reason that you're going to live for the Lord? Is it so that you can prove your worth? Oh, indeed, it seems to me that it is precisely because people take step two for granted that the church, more often than not, ends up in a great deal of trouble. It's because the church thinks it knows step two. It knows how we're delivered, that we got down pat, no problem, and we forget, we forget just how rich is God's grace, how complete is His work, how glorious is His saving power. And we find ourselves like the Galatians whom we've been studying, falling into works righteousness. We find ourselves like the church in the history of the world, falling into works righteousness. We find ourselves even today in our own relationships with each other, falling into works righteousness because we forget how we're delivered. Because our understanding of God's glory and grace, our sense of His wonder is so small. And so we misunderstand the glory of what He's accomplished. And indeed, if our, our sense of the, the, the deliverance is small, then our joy in the Lord will be no less small. That makes sense, doesn't it? If, if you've got a bit of a scrape on your knee and mom puts a band-aid on it, well, that's pretty good. You're grateful for mom. If you have uh, uh, some really strange uh, disease that nobody can really pronounce or has ever heard of, that's going to take your life, but your doctor, who's persistent and, and pushes through and, and says, no, I've, I've figured it. Yes, this is what... And gives you the, uh, the, the, the... Just as you're about to expire, you're on your deathbed, and he says, I've got it, gives you the medication, and you come back to life you're going to be a little more grateful. That's not quite Band-Aid on the knee stuff, is it? That's kind of more than that. You're going to tell people all about this guy. You're going to, let me tell you about my doctor. Oh, you've got to understand what this guy did for me, what this woman did for me. I mean, she just went to, to all these lengths in order to save me. Go to see my doctor. She's awesome. Our passion for Christ is dependent upon how gloriously we see His grace. And if we want wonder to fill our hearts, then we need to take a moment to sit and marvel at what Jesus did for our sake. And then we are to talk about how we are to thank God. Because really, that's in the end all that's left for us. If we know how, de- how great our sin and misery is, if we know how glorious is the salvation that we've been given in Jesus Christ, then we will understand that the only thing, the only thing you have to do, your one job this week is this. Praise God. Thank Him. Thank Him in your marriage. Thank Him in your work. Thank Him in your relationships. Thank Him in your thinking. Thank Him in your, in your time alone. Thank Him in the groups. Thank Him when you're on your phone. Thank Him when you're in your car. Thank Him in everything you do because that's all that's left for us to do. All that we have to do is to praise, worship, adore, and thank our God in the way that we speak, in the way that we act, in the way that we relate, in the way that we serve, in the way that we love God and our neighbor as ourselves. 
Because that's all that's left is a joyful praise of God in all that we do. And how can we do that? How can we do that well? How can we do that effectively? See, these are the three things that the catechism wants to teach us. And the catechism knows that if we can focus our hearts for a time on these things, if we can sit for a moment and reflect on our great sin and the glorious grace of God and how we are to live for the Lord, then we will know that joy of the comfort, that that peace that passes understanding, then that that sense of, of encouragement and confidence and strength that we so desperately need in a world so full of chaos. The antidote to fear and anxiety and, and struggle in this fallen world will come into our hearts. We, it's not that we'll be free from any struggle. It's not that nothing bad will happen to us. Don't get that wrong. But there will be a peace in our hearts, a comfort, a comfort in which we can live and die. This is a word you understand that our souls need every day. And this is a school that we need to enroll in regularly because this is the comfort that every one of us needs. We may not always know we need it, but we will always discover at some point our dependence upon it. And we need to embrace this schoolmaster's teaching we need to if we want to know the depth of what we just said together then let's bow our heads under its yoke let's enter into this classroom of faith and let's listen and say lord teach us our comfort that it may be precious to us and not something we put on the mantelpiece to collect dust let's ask the lord for help in that in prayer gracious god and heavenly father We thank you for this great and gracious promise. We thank you for this blessing and for this love that ours uh, 